Okay, before we do that, I wanted to um, pray and pray in a specific way. So uh, if you are newer here or if you just haven't been paying attention, uh, there are three different big wood bins. So like look like big boxes that Eric Nielsen, thank you, built for us. There's one back there. There's one, I think, right outside the door. And there's one downstairs. And on it, it says Restore Snohomish. And Restore Snohomish, if you go to RestoreSnohomish.org, You'll see that is the um, outreach, if you will, the sending, uh, the serving kind of branch of our ministry that we are using to kind of reach out into uh, the city and beyond. And when Jesus saves us, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says we are made new, and then it says we're given a ministry and we are ambassadors. And as ambassadors, we certainly can go uh, to the ends of the earth and to places like Chile and, and, and Africa and, and proclaim the gospel and serve in the name of Jesus. But we can also do a lot of that just right here in our own neighborhoods and in the city where we basically love those whom Jesus has called us to love because He has called us to do so. Matthew 25.35 says that for those who serve the least of these, you're serving Me. And so sometimes we're going to do that corporately, like we're going to get together with the city and other churches and we're going to uh, work on the park and we will do that uh, different times quarterly. Another time we're going to uh, call the families together and as a church we'll go and there's a, there's a farm here that actually grows a lot of the um, food for the food bank and we'll go and serve and, and, and cultivate whatever we need to cultivate. But we also want to cultivate, if you will, that identity in our own church on a regular rhythm basis. So even though we have a giving tree at Christmas, we're always thinking about outward. We're always thinking about how can we give? How can we serve? Because we were given to and we were served. And so each month we're going to adopt a different ministry that is working in some aspect of Snohomish or Snohomish County. And the one we're adopting for this month, and you should have a little insert in your bulletin. If not, you should grab one. And we're adopting Cocoon House. And I'll have a video that we'll show probably over the next couple Sundays about what Cocoon House is. And if you're not familiar with them, they're an organization that's headquartered in Everett, but they kind of reach much of the county. And they are geared towards serving and reaching those homeless teens and homeless youth that are growing in number, whether it be couch surfers or actually they're on the streets. And they provide housing, they provide other resources, and we simply want to partner with them because we believe they're doing it better than we probably could ourselves. And so we've talked with them, we've, we've reached out to them, as will other ministries, see how can we help, what can we call our church to, to do to give? And at Christmas time, it's easy, like, hey, let's give gifts for family. But when you go to a ministry, you know, we don't always know what they need, and we don't always want to just write them a check, though that might be helpful. And so we identify, they create these little packets for, for homeless teens that they provide for them, and they have various things uh, in there. And so we've broken that down to in a couple weeks, and so... This next week coming up, we're gathering as many protein bars and beef jerky as we can. We're going to pile them up in those donation boxes, and then the next week, we're going to have baby wipes and razors and shaving cream, and you're like, why those things? I don't know! We asked them, and they said those things. And so we're gathering together. Our youth are going to come together and put them into packets, and then we're going to bless Cocoon House with that. And so through them, we're going to serve those whom Jesus, I believe, loves And we're going to do that in the name of Jesus and for Jesus, even if they don't know Jesus yet. And some would argue, like, Cocoon House is not a faith-based organization. You go, why why would you ever partner with a faith-based organization? Well, number one, they're reaching some teens and those people in need that we need to reach. And so through them, we will bless in the name of Jesus, for Jesus, because Jesus has blessed us. But in addition to that, we will have the opportunity and the joy to actually bless in the name of Jesus and for Jesus and with Jesus those who are actually ministering to those people as well. And so it's like a twofer, right? We're going to bless the ministry and those who are reaching and the people themselves. And so I'm going to pray for Cocoon House. I'm going to ask and call and, and plead with you to help us do that next month, which will be April, not March. Um, we'll have another ministry, maybe an adoption ministry, maybe something for um, you know any number of things. We have a list and it's already settled, but I just don't remember them all. If you want more information, you can go to restoresnohomish.org and that kind of piles it all together and there's plenty of things going on. So I'm going to pray for Cocoon House and then we'll get into the sermon. So if you pray with me, Father God, we thank you 
for how much You have loved us. We thank You for how much You have served us. We see that in the love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You gave to us, Father, when we could give nothing back. You sought us, Lord, when we were running away from You. You gave us a home when we were homeless. And You called us to do the same, Father, just as Jesus did for us. And so, we ask, Lord, that You empower us to be the ambassadors that You've called us to be. We recognize that You have left us here on this planet, that when You save us, You didn't take us, You left us here to do something for Your glory, that grace might go to more people and glory and thanks might go up to You. And so, Father, we ask that through Cocoon House and many other ministries, You will help us to reach the least of these in the name of Jesus, for Jesus, and with Jesus. Father, I pray for Cocoon House who is on the front lines, if you will, reaching those homeless teens, those who are from broken homes, those who have been kicked out of their homes, those who are struggling with substances. Lord, would you help us just be a support to that organization so that they can reach? And through that, Lord, would you help them to see our love for Jesus? Would you help them, Father, see Jesus in us so that they can themselves confess faith in the same Lord? Thank you for the work that you are doing, work that we don't always even see going on, but trusting, Lord, that the seeds we plant will bear fruit. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Genesis 40, and before I do that, I have one more plug, and that's this. I'm going to speak to you guys mainly, because I know the women will listen anyway. We have great need in our kids' ministry, and the women always step up. The women are always there serving. And we've got 90 plus, sometimes over 100 little mini missionaries down there who are not just being babysat. They are being loved and cared for and taught the Word of God and taught about Jesus. And we need more help. And I have not ever seen, I don't think, a church that has ever had a majority of men serving in kids' ministry. It may exist, but I've not seen that. It's always the women carrying the burden of that ministry, and I don't know why, because we need more than anything men. Young men, older men, retired men, middle-aged men, ugly men, good-looking men, educated men, whatever kind of man you are, down there serving those kids, loving those kids. You may know very little about the Bible. That six-year-old may know more than you. But the Proverbs tell us, just be quiet and they'll think you're really wise and you can learn as you teach them the Word of God. So I'm asking, I pleaded with first service, I'm going to plead with second service. Uh, if you're not serving in Kids Road and you think, eh, I don't know, I kind of just like showing up. Don't think that. Come and bless some little kids. Commit yourself to a quarter of time. My hope is that Noelle at rdchurch.com, Noelle Jander does it all. That her inbox is so full. She can be like, I, I, Gmail broke because so many people emailed me to help out and be like, yes, of course, because they were listening to the Lord. And I'll tell you, if you're kind of feeling guilty, like, like mm, I don't know, mm, I didn't say your name, so that's the Holy Spirit, right? That's the Holy Spirit tickling you or smacking you, whatever. Get down there, sign up. We'd really appreciate it. It will bear fruit in your life, but also in the life of these young ones. Genesis 40 is where we're going to be today, and it's a heck of a chapter I will begin in verse 1 and read the whole thing, and it says this, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, well, we've had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. 
And as soon as it budded, it blossomed, shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, well, this is the interpretation. Three branches of three days, and in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head, restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hands formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. And when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, Oh, this is the interpretation. Three baskets are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh's going to lift up your head from you. Hang you on a tree. And the birds are going to eat flesh from you. So on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants, lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. And yet the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is God's Word. Now, Joseph, as we've been going through his story, is in prison, the prison of the king, where likely political prisoners are mainly kept for committing political level crimes. Joseph is innocent. He's suffering for a personal crime that he was falsely accused of committing when he was in Potiphar's house. And yet, the Bible says the Lord is with Joseph in this royal prison, showing him steadfast love and giving him favor in the sight of the prison warden. And so by grace, Joseph is put in charge of all other prisoners and he actually is managing the entire prison. And even though Joseph is probably in his state more respected than he should be and likely more comfortable than he could be. The reality is he's still locked in a prison. It's like, hey, I'm top of the hill in prison. Prison. And this image of the prison, I find this image to be actually quite helpful in describing our journey with God. While we may not literally be in a prison, at different times, and perhaps at a time right now in your life, our circumstances can cause us to feel like we are hopelessly trapped in hardship or difficulty. And as I said, there are different kinds of prisons. Some prisons are relational, revealed in the hardship of a marriage, the hardship of family, the hardship of parenting, the hardship of friendship. Other prisons are maybe physiological, right? We have or see them revealed in the hardship of emotional suffering or physical brokenness, disease. There are prisons that are material, right? They reveal themselves in the hardships of jobs, maybe debts or just financial Needs And there are other kinds of prisons with personal hardships or social ones or obviously spiritual ones. And they're all prisons because they all feel undeserved, unexpected, uncomfortable, and unchanging, at least as you can see the near future. You're stuck in what feels like a prison. And the prison doesn't necessarily have to be a torture chamber where it's extremely painful, sometimes it's just that place of undesirable station or perpetual difficulty where you do the same thing over and over again, like oppressive monotony that just feels like punishment, like you're stuck. And what happens in those moments is that we have such a desperate and understandable desire to get out of it I want to get free from this prison and get on to more important business that I should be or could be doing. That becomes the governing force. Getting out, getting out, I need to get out. We become convinced that this is not the place God 
wants me. And so we set our eyes beyond the prison. And we begin to imagine that place that God's preparing for us. Oh, I know why I'm in this hardship. I know why I'm in this. I know why I'm stuck because I'm being prepared for this awesome thing right here. And so we're looking at this and we're missing where we're at. Convinced that it's always preparation. We're always being prepared for something. And when we do that, we end up overlooking the purposes that God actually has for us in the place itself. Consider what Paul wrote to the Philippian church from jail, from prison. A royal prison cell, mind you. In Rome. He said this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the Gospel. So that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I don't hear Paul in there saying, I can't wait to get out of prison. I hear him looking at his prison differently. Now, Joseph's life looks to us, and maybe it feels to Joseph, interrupted. And we must remember that while God has plans for him, because we have the rest of the story, He has plans for him beyond the cell, beyond the prison. He also has opportunities for him within it. Joseph's life is imprisoned, right? But he's not there alone. And those who are with him need to hear the word of God from him. Joseph's life is shackled, it's chained, it's stuck, but what we see is that the Word of God is never bound by such chains, no matter what kind of prison you find yourselves in. So let's take a look at at who is brought into his life and who is brought into the prison with him. We see that Joseph, beginning in those first verses, has been in prison for a while. It often says, you know, for some time which is this generic kind of like, oh, how long has he been there? Well, we don't know how long he served in Potiphar's house. We do know it's about uh, 13. um, He was 17 and he's 30 when he rises to be a prince in Egypt. So they have these 13 years. More than likely, it's possible that he's been in prison for upwards of 10 years. It may be shorter. But for some time. From this point, we know, according to the next chapter, that he's in prison for at least two years longer. But at some time during that period of imprisonment, the king of Egypt, also known as Pharaoh, becomes angry with his cupbearer. Now a cupbearer, we probably think of the guy who like, I'll drink that so there's no poison in it, now you can drink it. And he may have done that, but he's more like a right-hand man. He's more like the, the highest butler. And then obviously the royal baker cooks and bakes everything for the king, but He gets angry with these two guys for some unknown reason. They committed some crime, maybe. It really doesn't matter. What we see is that in Egypt, we'll see this now, we'll see this later, that Pharaoh is king and by his word men live and they die in his kingdom. The Pharaoh is known as the morning and evening star and with a word He can restore a man's innocence and say, forgiven no matter what you've done. He can take a prisoner and make him a prince, which he will do. We also see the Pharaoh possesses the power to sentence a baker to death for making a bad cake. Or, later in Exodus, the Pharaoh possesses the power with a word to condemn thousands of children to be thrown into the Nile River. And yet, A guy with that much power and that much influence can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. The Bible says, according to Proverbs 21.1, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wills. That's how big God is. And so it's not to see the king's decision that somehow God's reacting to it. He's directing many things and 
It's not an accident that Joseph is placed in Potiphar's house and it wasn't an accident that Potiphar was the captain of the king of the garden. It was not a coincidence that Joseph was placed in the king's royal prison out of all prisons he could have been in. It was not fate that the royal cupbearer and the royal baker were placed into Joseph's care in the same prison by the king. When we're in or feel like prison, we can begin to convince ourselves it's an accident. And as a result, we, we find it hard to not focus on our situation, our suffering, and dwelling on that, being governed by that, and hoping in nothing else but my freedom. Because I'm not supposed to be here. And in doing that, thinking about me and my pain and my suffering and my situation, we ignore the other people that are actually around us. It's rare for us to actually be in, quote, our prisons by ourselves. Hardship is definitely a personal thing, but it's rarely a private thing. And the difficulties and the hardships we experience affect those that we live with and those that we interact with, even if we don't bring it out. When we suffer, those who are near us are suffering. More than anyone, I think, those who are in our care will suffer if we suffer. They often become the bearers of our brokenness. Even if we try not to, I don't want to burden you with that, they often become the bearers of, of that brokenness. Instead of ministering to those who are in prison with us, we end up mistreating them, maybe accidentally, but certainly. And we make them twice the prisoners that we are ourselves. Or worse, we begin to blame those who are near us for the prison that we're in. For the prison itself. Even if we can see the people who are near us in the cell next to us, if you will, we're usually pointing the finger at them saying, you're responsible for while my life feels like prison right now. You did this. There's the difficult spouse. There's the abusive boss. The psycho neighbor. The unethical co-worker. The needy friend. The really needy friend. Or the unruly child. Where you're like, you're the one making this hard! And so instead of actually seeing them as someone in the prison that you're in together, you make them responsible for it. And if God is as big as He is, if He is in control as much as He is, what if, what if God is not preparing you for something beyond the prison, but is actually calling you to minister in the prison that you're in right now? I mean, how would you relate to those people in your lives? I mean, everyone in every context of your life, whether it's in your own home, whether it's at your job, whether it's in your community, whether it's in the church, how would you relate to those people differently if you understood that there were no accidental relationships, that God had put that person, that personality in your life? Perhaps we would stop focusing all of our energy on getting out of the prison that we're in and maybe start helping those who have been brought into the prison with us. Now these people... Some are easy to help and some are not. Because some are like you and some are very different than you. Might be people who are in your care. Might be people whose care you're in. Might be those people that you're naturally drawn to. Like, oh, I really enjoy you. And it might be someone that you're naturally repelled by. Oh, I just don't even like you. I don't like the way you think. I don't like the way you talk. I don't like the way you complain and whine. Right? What if that person wasn't put there by accident, but there for you to minister to? Perhaps instead of planning, this will be a tough one, 
Perhaps instead of planning for the day you get out of prison, what if you expected it to continue? And began instead to devote yourself to other prisoners? What if the prison never changed? Joseph doesn't have any promise that like, oh, I'll get you out in five years, 90 days. What if you just expected, okay, I'm, I'm, it's prison I'm in. And even if you don't see your circumstances right now as a torturous prison, you don't see your marriage that way, you don't see your job that way, or family or community or whatever relationship that way, know that for those who are in Christ, the Bible describes Christians as exiles. Albeit temporarily imprisoned people in a foreign place. Walking around a world full of prisoners who all have death sentences. And so our perspective for where we're at should change unless we're thinking about ourselves. Prisons have a tendency to do that. Take us internal and only look at our suffering when I think the Lord wants to open our eyes up and see who else is there with us and maybe needs to hear a word. Well, the opportunity to share the word comes for Joseph, right? Joseph is given the responsibility to attend or care for these two political prisoners. He's put in charge of the whole prison, but he's also put in charge of them especially. They're brought really close. And both the cupbearer and the baker have vivid dreams. And Joseph walks in one morning, he notices that they're troubled. And it's interesting that it even says that, unless they're like, again, scratching pictures on the wall, or like shaking, or like, <laughs> like, well, I don't know what they're doing to make them more troubled than they've been considering they're in prison. And it reminds me that Joseph isn't just going through the motions. Joseph isn't just walking through the prison like, oh, you guys got your food, you got your blankets, cool, whatever. He's watching them, he's looking at them, he's wondering about them to the point where he asks them, what's wrong? He doesn't have to do that. He has no responsibility to care for that money, but he cares. The prisoner cares about prisoners. He says, why, why are you so sad? What's going on? And they say, well, we've, we've, had, we've had dreams. And they freaked us out. we got no interpreter. No one to tell us what they mean. This thing that we're troubled by. Well, I want to take just a second to discuss dreams in the Christian life. Maybe you've um, been around people who have dreams, you've had dreams yourself. Biblically speaking, dreams are actually pretty rare in the Bible. They actually come up in, in the Old Testament two main places, Genesis here and Daniel. Other than that, they're barely hinted at. They really aren't in the Old Testament that much. As you get into the New Testament, there are really two dreams that occur that are kind of focused on with any length of time. One is the dream that Joseph gets so he doesn't divorce Mary. An angel comes to him in a dream. And the other is a dream that Potiphar's wife gets, Potiphar's Pilate's wife gets when they're going to kill Jesus. And she freaks out and is like, don't kill him, have nothing to do with him. In both the New and the Old Testament, you do see visions occasionally, which are a little bit different. That's like a waking dream. You're not sleeping. But unfortunately, it seems like our culture's fascination with dreams and all things kind of mysterious, which is nothing wrong with mysterious until you become really focused on what is mysterious as opposed to and above what's been revealed. It's bled into the church and what it's created, I think, was this, this pursuit of like this other knowledge, this greater mysterious knowledge. It's produced in the church generations of biblically illiterate people who are spirit-filled, but just as lost as the world. In the world, in an effort to give meaning to the brokenness that they, everyone knows is there, that they experience... It produces different theories. And one guy named Sigmund Freud talked about dreams. 
And he theorized that nothing anyone ever does occurs by chance, that every action is motivated by these unconscious desires we have at some level, these deep desires. And he believed that in order for a society to be civilized, that that there's another part of us that kind of restrains our desires and restrains us from doing some of these urges or these impulses, and that's why we're able to have a, a civilized society. However, he also said that these urges and these impulses got to come out somehow. They got to come to the surface in some way, and sometimes they come in disguised forms, and, and other times they're released through dreams. And you interpret dreams and tell people what they meant. And dreams, they were said, would reveal the deeper truths that led to greater happiness. And today, we don't have a lot of people talking about dreams. There certainly are those people that do. If you, if you gravitate towards more charismatic circles, I went to a charismatic school and, and everyone talked about dreams. Dream this and God's telling me this. And it was like, it's going to get a little crazy. But today we certainly have across the church and in culture, people just trusting the thoughts that they think or the feelings that they feel as authoritative reflections of reality. And what I mean by that, we're told little things that are subtle, like follow your heart, do what makes you happy, be who you want to be, or decide for yourself. Essentially, those are all calls to let feelings and desires and emotions be your guide, determining meaning, directing life, especially responding to troubling things. Now, that's not what Joseph does. When Joseph sees the opportunity to minister to someone who is troubled by what they've experienced, Visibly troubled, Joseph jumps at the opportunity and says, hey, God owns all dream interpretations. Which is another way of saying, God alone reveals truth and meaning. God alone reveals what reality is more than what we just think, more than what we just feel or desire. God's Word is what reveals meaning. God's Word is what provides understanding. God's Word is the only lens through which we can interpret all things correctly, especially troubling things. And I am convinced that with the completion and the collection of the Bible, what we call these 66 books that are inspired by God, I don't think God has to use dreams and visions like He may have used as much in the past. That's not to say that He cannot or does not, because I'm certain there are people who've had dreams and are thinking right now like, well, wait a second. God can communicate however He chooses, but when we have to make a decision, when we have to respond to troubling things, when we have to teach people how to respond, and how to understand. Our first stop should always be the Bible. The Word of God and not things like dreams. The reason why, as Romans 1 simply states, men have an interesting tendency to exchange the truth of God for a lie. That's our default mode. And there are plenty of things, if you will, dreams included, that we can be troubled by in this world. Political things, social things, material things, all kinds. And there are plenty of people that are troubled by them. The question is, when we, when we all are exposed to, which we are more than any other time in our history, all these things we could be troubled by, where are people going to turn to get understanding about what they're feeling and what they're experiencing and what they're seeing. Where is the trustworthy revelation? Is it our gut? Is it our heart? Is it our traditions? It is what I feel? Is it my interpretation? Well, that's my interpretation. Who are we going to turn them to? What are we going to turn them to? I mean, there are many sources available. And there is 
a ton of spiritual fake news and spiritual fake teachers that are more than willing to give an answer. Knowing that we have to, in our own lives, be seeking the right place to understand what's going on ourselves. We need to be prepared to help others understand what's going on in the world. Yes, you can read tons of blogs. You can watch all kinds of pod, or listen to podcasts and watch YouTube channels and learn all kinds of things, but that's not going to replace the truth. So that when people are troubled by all things political, social, economic, material, physical, do you have an answer? Are you prepared to give an answer when things are disturbing and there are lots of things that are disturbing? And you don't have to have an answer for everybody, but an answer for the people who are near you. First in your own home, your children and your spouse. What about your friends and your coworkers and those in the community who are asking the same questions that everyone's asking? What is going on? Or when that person gets that diagnosis from the doctor and they're struggling with suffering or some terrible thing, what do you tell them? What direction do you have to give them? What hope do you have to offer them? Or that person is, is destroying their lives through addiction or any number of other things. What warnings do you have for them? Whether it is calming the fears of people or warning people to fear, do you know what God's Word says about troubling things? Can you give spiritual perspective to earthly hardship, whether it's relational, material, political, sexual? You know, it's noteworthy that when um, the dreams are given to Joseph, there's no pause between his interpretation, right? Hearing it and then he's, this is what it says. He doesn't stop to go, let me pray about this and hear what the Lord has to say. That's what happens in Daniel. But not here. It's almost as if Joseph is prepared. As if he already knows the Lord. As if he's heard the Word of the Lord. He has studied the, the Word of the Lord and the stories that his father has told him and how they die. He knows. He's prepared. He is ready. And so, he says, tell me your dream. And so the cupbearer is the first one to tell him. And both these dreams are very different and they give us kind of a picture of the kinds of things that we might have to tell people. The cupbearer says, look, there was this vine that had three branches and they had these clusters as they blossomed with grapes. I grabbed the grapes and I'm squeezing it into the Pharaoh's cup. What does that mean? And so Joseph proceeds to tell him the interpretation. He says, well, Three branches symbolize three days. And in three days, the Pharaoh is going to release you and he's going to restore you to the same position that you were as his cupbearer. These are the kinds of sermons that we all love and want to preach to people. The encouraging ones, right? Where the cupbearer's like, really? Seriously? I'm serious, dude. Like you're going to be restored. Everything's going to be back to normal. It's good. Have hope. Have joy. Everyone loves to tell people good news. These are the sermons to the guilty who are told about God's forgiveness. These are the sermons to the weak who, who need to hear about Jesus' strength. These are the sermons to the, the brokenhearted who need to hear about healing. These are the sermons to those filled with shame and hiding to say, God loves you and He knows. These are the sermons that you preach and you speak to the dying or those who have had someone die about heaven. These are the good news sermons. These are the resurrection sermons. These are the hope against hope sermons. These are the, the powerful sermons that have the ability to, to raise someone up and from, the, from the prison and to free them into joy. 
And of course, before we can speak these kinds of sermons, we best have preached them to ourselves first. And you know what? There is nothing more powerful than a person in prison preaching a sermon to another person in prison. We've had, over the history of 11 years of ministry, several people die in our church. And one of the most um, important, and by important I mean it was one of the first people to die when I was pastoring. And it was a two-year process. And we stood in front of the church and we said, um, Debbie has cancer. And we're going to walk with Debbie through this. And it was several years of walking. But man, that woman could preach. And she preached as she died over two years some of the most beautiful sermons. Encouraging me when I'm discouraged. You know how encouraging it is to hear from someone who's dying about their faith in the Lord and their love for the Lord? Prisoners need to hear prisoners preach and hear the words spoken because it brings life and it brings freedom and there's nothing more powerful. But those aren't the only kinds of opportunities we're going to have to speak. The comforting truths of God are not the only ones we're going to have to share sometimes, right? The baker is listening to the interpretation that the cupbearer got. He's like, that was awesome. All right, my turn. Do me, do me, do me, do me, right? Okay, here's mine. Ready? And he shares, okay, look, there's three baskets, like three branches, three baskets, right? They're stacked on my head, and there's like all these things on top, like baked lasagna and bread, and there's birds in the eye. That's kind of weird, but what is it? And Joseph, you notice he doesn't pause and go, oh. He says, here's the interpretation. Three days. Yeah, three days. You're going to be hung. Can you imagine what the baker felt, but what Joseph maybe was feeling as he's about to say that or as he does? How would you feel? Like he knows what he has to say. He knows what it means. And those kind of truths are hard to hear. It's difficult though to be the speaker of those hard truths. As I became a, a pastor, I was a high school teacher prior to that, and I became a pastor, it was amazing how confessional people became. They just would share everything, right? I'm like, oh, what? You know, it's just like this darkness. And there was times when I needed to give comfort, but there was times when I go, what does the Bible say about that? I mean, I, I love this woman, but you know, uh, um, you know, we're sleeping together, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you want to know what the Bible says about that? All right. And I have to share. And we're so reluctant to do that because we like people to like us. And we also don't just want people to like us, we want them to feel good. And so we won't tell them the truth, or we'll tell them a version of it. Like, well, I mean... You can imagine Joseph like, I, I might be wrong. I mean, I've only done this twice now. So like, it could, I mean, I think it means that. I'm not exactly sure. No. Are you sure? I appreciated the words of James Boyce. who said it this way, how many of us are willing to preach the cupbearer's sermon but are unwilling to preach the baker's sermon? They're afraid to stand before a congregation and say that, you know what? You guys are members of Adam's fallen race under the curse of God. And if you had what was coming to you, you all would end up in hell, the place that God has prepared for sinners. People are afraid to say that. People are afraid to say that God has given one man one mediator, one name under heaven through which men may be saved, the man Jesus Christ. And unless you put your trust and faith in Him, you will perish eternally. People are afraid to say that. 
They preach that God loves sinners, but they won't preach that God hates sin. They preach about heaven, but they won't warn about hell. But if we're going to be faithful to God, we must preach all that God reveals. And God will deal with those who know these truths, but allow people to perish without warning them of His judgment. You can't stop them, but you can warn them. We who have the truth, you, if you know the truth, you have that responsibility. And the declaration of that truth, whether you say something or you remain silent, is not determined by the feelings it might elicit. Yes, we should speak gently. Yes, we should be compassionate and caring as we deliver the truth. We speak the truth, but we speak it in love. Joseph doesn't soften or qualify God's interpretation in order to defend God or make the baker feel better. He just simply shares God's interpretation. Do you know how, how much comfort it brings when I have to have a hard conversation or a fierce conversation with somebody, whether it be my own child, my bride, a friend, a member of the church, wherever, is just to go, it's God's Word we're talking about. Not my opinion. Not my preference. Because guess what? There are people in my family whom have chosen certain paths that would make it a lot easier if I could just affirm it. If I could just go with my personal preferences, I would avoid a lot of conflict but I can't. Not if I'm going to be faithful to the Word of God that I know. We must hold God's Word with conviction that it is the very words of God. And we must proclaim and share God's promises with compassion and joy that people need to hear the news that there is hope beyond this world. There is forgiveness for your sin. There is a God who loves. But we must also speak God's warnings with courage. With courage. And without apology. So to close it up, everything that Joseph foretells comes to pass as we saw at the end. And as he had shared the interpretation with the cupbearer, he had asked him, hey, would you remember me? Like when everything goes well, convinced it's going to happen, very certain of the interpretation. When everything goes well and you're standing before Pharaoh, would you, would you mention my name? Would you tell him about me? I am wrongly accused. I am in this prison and I should not be. Would you put in a good word for me? But the baker didn't remember. He didn't remember for two years. Can you imagine what Joseph was feeling when that door closed and you know, the, that day came and the, the cupbearer was released? Oh, I'm back. He's like, okay. Next time the door opens, he's going to tell him. And next time the door opens, there's a bowl of schlop comes in. It's like, what? Okay, he'll remember tomorrow. He'll remember. I mean, just give him a day. Party it up. It's Pharaoh's birthday. All right. Next day, nothing. For two years, nothing. I said it last week as I was talking to Liz about worship. I think she probably said this, so I quote Liz Kirkman. I'd rather be remembered by God and imprisoned than... Yeah. I think I'm going to say it wrong. I'd rather be remembered by God in prison that remember my men and free. I'll be forgotten by men. That's okay. Even though Joseph rightly desired, right? Even made an effort to get out of prison. We, you have to be careful. Like when we find we're in these prisons, it's not that you should be like, you know what? This is awesome. I just love this hardship. I love the fact that I have a terminal illness. Um, I just love that my, my marriage is really difficult. I love that my kids are unruly. This is rad. That's not what is expected. Joseph does say like, hey, if I could get out. But that's not where his hope is. That's not where he is ultimately putting all his 
eggs, if you will, in a basket to get out. He's waiting on God. He's waiting on God. And even if he remains in prison, which he did, he knows and he has proven that the Word of God is not going to be chained, is not going to be prison, and still has the power to give others hope, to warn others about condemnation, and to give him the same. It's like Paul wrote in his last letter, a man who has his death sentence, he's going to be beheaded within a short amount of time. And in 2 Timothy he says, Remember Christ, writing from prison, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as I preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God's not bound, he says. The Word of God still has its power. We live in a troubled world that desperately needs to hear God's warnings and needs to hear God's promises. And whether you find yourself at some point in a literal prison in the world, or just a prison of circumstances, or simply a prison that's very personal just of your broken flesh, know that it has been famously said, and I try to say over and over again, your job in that place is to preach the Gospel first to yourself, but preach the Gospel, die, and be forgotten. The world may never remember what you said. They may never remember what you said, whether it was a word of comfort or warning, but God will remember that you said it. Catch that? That's the most important thing. It almost doesn't matter what you say if you're saying the Word of God. It doesn't matter what the effect of that is. God will remember that you said it. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. For those who are in Christ, for those who have put their faith in the broken body of Jesus and blood shed for you, those who believe Jesus died in your place and lived in your place, this is your opportunity to preach a sermon. As you come up, don't come up if you don't believe. I'm sure everyone has some prison that they're in. And so let this time be a time where you're preaching a sermon to yourself, reminding yourself that God loves you, that God remembers you, that God knows where you're at. And let this be a place where you get the courage to proclaim that truth, not just to yourself, but to someone else. Believe and be saved. Believe and be comforted. Believe and don't focus so much on the next thing God's preparing for you and open your eyes to what is right there before you. Because there are people in your life who need to hear the Word of God that you say you believe. So believe it enough to tell somebody. Amen? Let's pray.